You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Tracy, guess what? Yeah. It's December. It's December it already. Is. Can you believe that it's already December and here we are? It's, and it's kind of rude. It's it's a little worrisome, the whole space-time continuum thing. I will yeah. say, though, that um, the upside of me having uh, gotten gotten COVID over Thanksgiving, which is a sentence that I hadn't thought I would ever say, the upside of me getting COVID, uh, after having successfully spent almost three years not getting COVID, like I was really kind of running a streak there, Um the good thing about it was I had a lot of time at home to get all the Christmas decorations up. So we went into December and like all that crap is done and I get to cozy up in front of the fire because we've got like a legit fireplace and the whole thing. So it feels, you know, we're making the most of it. It's good. Yeah. So it's cozy. It's it is. It's cozy, uh, but not in a cozy mystery kind of way, in a more kind of like murder mystery kind of way, which is, you know, workable for me. And and, and I think fits because today we've got Michael Sims, uh, who is the editor of the Penguin Book of Murder Mysteries, which just dropped at the end of November, which means that it's probably a really good cozy in the sense of cuddling up by the fire chance for you to pick that up for your holiday list. So, Michael, how's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. I'm um, feeling like I'm at a cocktail party with two people I'm glad to meet, so <laughs> this is much more relaxed than some interviews. Oh, well, Good. that's, I mean, I like the cocktail party sort of vibe here, which is um, especially, we, we're overachieving, because actually Patrick and I, both of us are, are dry, um, so we're just <laughs> that scintillating with our, I, it's the Dr. Pepper, isn't it? So it's yeah. not it's not fueled <laughs> in any other way. Yeah, I actually, it's weird, I've lost my taste for alcohol over the years. So I drink. I'm from rural Tennessee, so I'm required to drink massive amounts of iced tea. Mm, yeah, yeah, sweet tea. yeah. Sweet tea, sweet tea. Yeah, That's um, you know, my yeah. family's from Kentucky, so we do sweet tea. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and they carry it in ambulances. You know, they have IVs for it if you need it. Oh God, that's so awesome. <laughs> That I mean, so awesome. I, I'm caught between believing that and not believing it. And I think I, I prefer a world bed. where it's true. Yeah. So, yeah. so in, in, in throughout throughout the world, there are divides that happen. And one of the divides that we've always talked about in the podcast is barbecue. But there is another divide that comes from the South, and that is Lipton or Louisiana. Oh. Oh. Mm. Mm. <laughs> um, my, no one from the South will like my answer because my answer is big, hard, neither. Like, kind of terrible. Yeah. Where are you from? You said you're from Kentucky. Uh, I'm born and raised in the Chicago area. So believe it or not, right now from, I said my people were from Kentucky. Yeah, that's true. Patrick's from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Chicago. I was raised in California, but my mom's people were from Kentucky. My dad's people are from Ireland. So I'm an Irish hillbilly. Tracy. Yeah is Chicago all the way, right? Like, oh, yeah. I think you, yeah. you, you, My you whole did life. live other places, but it's like, yeah, just Chicago. I went to school in, in Indiana and also in Ireland um, and before coming back to the States. But yeah, I've been, I've been a Chicago girl from beginning to, to the present. Um, wow. So yeah, yeah. You want to know nice. some Chicago stuff? I'm here for it. But uh, yeah, so we're, it's super fun to have you on. And I, I'm, I'm kind of geeking out about this on two different levels. The level, of course, of I love a good murder mystery. Um, I love a good short story. And so that's very exciting and, and fun for me, especially because, and we'll get to this in a minute, your anthology 
takes a very different view of the murder mystery genre than I think if people were to sort of open it up and look at the table of contents, I think they would be surprised by how many names they don't recognize, which I think is is a huge incentive to, oh, to pick up the book and to look into it. The other level at which I'm geeking out is that you are also a nonfiction writer, um, and I'm very much the sort of uh, Rebecca Solnit, um, Mary Roach, looking into all the sort of bits and pieces of weird things in the world kind of girl as well. And so um, I'm just, I'm just giddy. (laughs) (laughs) There's no question there. It's just an observation. um, Shared um, curiosity and shared passion for these things um, has led to, I think some of the best conversations I ever had. And also it's just, I think we mentioned cocktail parties earlier. I was thinking that, Doing an anthology, and I may—I think I say this in the intro—is to me figuring out the guest list of a cocktail party. Oh, and you pick some of your favorite people because mm-hmm. you know they're going to be great, and then you pick a couple, and you think these are unknown okay. quantities, but you think this poet will go very well with this scientist, and so you okay. do it yeah. like thinking like a catalyst to make different mm-hmm. things happen. And I've always loved anthologies. Uh, when I grew up in very off, much off in the country in Tennessee, there were no bookstores in our town. And mm-hmm. um, there was a little library that saved my life and introduced me to the entire world. But um, there, there were no bookstores. And so when I would find anthologies in the mail order book clubs, like Scholastic Book Clubs, that they yeah, had, um, I would get a lot of those. I just loved those. And I have a bunch on the shelves mm-hmm. behind me and or beside me or somewhere in my little weird self-referential cubicle where I write things. Mm -hmm. And so on the contents page, I was thinking that I really put some of these people together so that they would surprise you in the juxtaposition as if you had, I don't know, in our nonfiction rambles or something like you had Carl Mm -hmm. Sagan next to um, Norman Mailer or something really surprising. Yeah, yeah. Let's put Lewis Thomas at the same table oh, as David nice. Sedaris oh. and see what happens. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I love Lewis Thomas. Yeah. David Sedaris mm-hmm. wrote me the nicest letter of anyone I've ever met. I interviewed him years ago for one of his books, and he had asked me, and I'd totally forgotten this, he had asked me about my first book that was coming out, and he then t- typewrote. I sent me a typewritten yeah. letter, of course, that was about how we talked about my book and thanking me. And I, th- huh. and my book hadn't come out yet. I was nobody. He was a big deal. And mm-hmm. I thought it was just the most gracious thing I've ever seen. So when people That's mention wonderful. his name, I just want to say, what a sweet guy. <laughs> it, yeah, and, and honestly, there's, there's, you always sort of worry when there's someone whose work excites you and you admire them, that if you, if you meet with them, that's going to be the bubble bursting moment, that that's, that's going yeah. to be realizing that whatever you have built up within your mind about them is, is not the truth of them. It's such a, such a wonderful, refreshing surprise to get that, that, that kind of affirmation. It is. It is. And it's, it's like Carl Sagan. I interviewed him once. He was just fabulous. Everything you would want mm-hmm. any human being to be that you would mm-hmm. have a chance to speak to. Stephen Jay mm-hmm. Gould was the most pompous ass I've ever encountered in my entire life. <laughs> Having read my fair share of Gould, this is not an enormous surprise to me. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've heard similar stories about uh, Harlan Ellison. Like people, oh, yes, God, meet yeah. Harlan Ellison I have friends who say he's a very, he was, is a very nice man, was a very nice man. But 
he was just as arrogant as any human being can be in a lot of the interviews yeah. I've seen and read. Mm-hmm. What was the mm-hmm. uh, the the thing where he was he was just livid about uh, City on the Edge of Tomorrow? Is that the name of it, or City on the Edge of Forever? Um, City on the Edge of Forever. Might have- yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Because they, they rewrote the script, right? And they rewrote yeah. the script, and 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 they changed it and everything. But he won an award for it, uh, and he still accepted the award, even though, you know, it wasn't. And then, like, he said something nasty on stage when he got the award, like, never, never let them rewrite you or something or screw you. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, anyway, uh-huh. <laughs> I love anthologies because they're like mixtapes. Oh yeah. yeah, I love and it, that. And it gives you the opportunity, yeah. like there, there might be something on there that's like the anchor that that brings you in, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I really like this author. And then you go through the rest of it, and then you might find something else that you like, right? You mm-hmm. might find yes. a new voice. Yeah, and yeah. Um, in fact, I love anthologies so much, and I've this must be the eighth or ninth I've done, I, some, something close to ten, I don't know, and. Yeah. Um, it, it just reminds me of how much I loved them when I was a kid. And so I still have a bunch of them and, you know, I'm much older than you guys. So when I was a kid, there were these giant oversized Alfred Hitchcock anthology series, and he didn't really edit them, but they were playing on his persona on TV, on his, on his sure. Alfred Hitchcock presents or whatever. And I, so I find those in books and use bookstores and stuff like that. So I've accumulated all of them again, as if I'm... <laughs> creating a little diorama of my own childhood <laughs> and I've got, <laughs> that's really I've cool got something called big little books that um were around when i was a kid in the 60s and uh they have a they have um they're like a almost a predecessor of graphic novels in the sense that i mean comic books really are but this is a bridge sort of they have a picture on every single every other page is a picture and there's text mm-hmm. on the right and so it was yeah. like a bridge to get me to read more substantial books. Sure. And a lot of them were based on TV shows or whatever, but I just absolutely loved them and, and remember some of them fondly. And I, when I get them, I don't just put them on the shelf. I reread them and I find myself back in time. How old am I? I'm very old. 65. So back in time, 55 years ago, even sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just crazy. I I think one of the things that's really, I don't know that when when you are a writer or an editor or anthologist, whatever sort of hat you're wearing in that sort of collecting of a story or collecting of information, you're doing it because you're excited about it. You're doing it because you love it. Yeah. And ideally, you want someone else to kind of get swept into that with you. It's kind of like you're trying to construct, you're trying to construct something to share with these other people that you yes. want them to to have this experience with you. And I'm, I'm looking at, this is like literal classic back cover copy language here, but you know, Penguin itself sort of pitches the book of murder mysteries as um, full of little known gems. And I think that that's a, that's, I mean, it's back cover copy type language. It gets thrown around to kind of um, be a placeholder for something that I think is much more complicated than that. So I'm kind of interested in what's the gift for you of the little known gem? Like what was your sort of like, your guiding vision or principles behind that? Oh, that's a very good point. Um, I think everything, I feel like that modern fiction began when people started describing what I'm feeling right now, which is trying to describe mixed emotions. You know, the Mm -hmm. heroic epics and things like that don't do a lot of stopping to think about, should I do this? Is this wrong? How will this be perceived? But 
so I think there are a lot of mixed emotions and mixed motivations in doing anything like this. And one always is, uh, even like when I pitch essays and articles to the New York Times or wherever, there needs to be some kind of hook other than I just randomly thought I'd like to write about this. And I've caught myself saying that in pitches to magazines and newspapers. Um, some version, of, I just tone it down from the, the naive sounding, gosh, I really want to write about this. And <laughs> yeah. so, so there needs to be a hook. And so un, lesser known authors and, and lesser known detectives are, of course, a kind of hook. But for me, I think it's in part, I didn't expect to become a sort of minor expert on Victorian crime fiction, but I've done a lot of writing about it over the years. And you do develop, I hope, a palette for a sense of what's what's good and original, what's strong writing. But then there's also just that dusty old sport of prowling antique shops. Oh. You just, you find something, you go, oh my God, oh, you know what that is? That's based on such and such. And it's shaped like, you see how that's shaped? And and then the the classic, I had one of those when I was a kid. You know, the most common yeah. line you hear in an antique shop. Um, and so I feel like that part of what I wanted was a sense of, the antique prose. The, mm -hmm. I find a, a, I don't listen to music in the car very much. For example, I mostly listen to audiobooks, and a, I Me listen too. to all sorts. What? Me you too. Patrick. <laughs> oh, good. Patrick yeah. and I are team audiobook as well. Yeah. Oh, good, good. And I discovered it, it seems to me fairly late in life, like five years ago. I suddenly became an advocate for this thing that everybody else I knew had been doing for fifteen years at least. It but, became easier. Um, That's why it became easier. It, it became yes, something and, that yeah. you could you could just get online. It's on an app on your phone. Boom, you're done. You don't yeah. have to buy no more. You know, ten discs. Have to buy uh, yeah, ten discs to get a book, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I had um, I had a car that I was very excited. I once bought a car that I was very glad that it had one of those six CD decks yep. in there. Mm, Put the, the changers whole book yeah. in there, maybe, and it would just yeah. go yeah. through it. But now streaming, of course, has made the whole world. I used. I remember when videos came along in the 1980s. I thought all those movies I've read about that I've never had a chance to see, I can see. I can become cinematically literate by God. And so I never really did fully, but I've enjoyed a million movies. And so with the audiobooks, I listen to um, a lot of uh, Victorian writing because there's there's just a kind of music in it for me. And uh, so there was some of that in this writing. But the first one, uh, The Hand and Word by an Irishman named Gerald Griffin, um, is a, it's a very raw piece of ore. It's almost like it's carved out of Gaelic folklore or something. And it's just, um, it's, it's unlike anything else. It's a murder story. And there's, uh, and all these say murder mysteries, not detective stories. Not every single one of them really has a detective in it. But they all have bloody murder, by God. <laughs> and so <laughs> this, um, it begins with a kind of rawness. And then I wanted it to, I wanted you to be able to see it evolve toward the sophistication and elegance of the last three or four stories. And so a sense of language growing and changing, society changing, uh, hmm. more women writing, more women uh, creating female characters. And so for me, part of it, there's always a story, anything like this. I want the anthology itself to be a kind of story. And that you, and that's why everything I do is rigid, like when every anthology I've done, the, the stories appear in rigidly chronological order. So that mm -hmm. you get a sense of the evolution of things. And um, 
that just that grabs me enormously whether i was doing ghosts or or vampires or or more mm-hmm. murder mysteries and the one of the first i did was lupin maurice leblanc's series that inspired the french tv series lupin and he is they're all just the most brilliant and funniest laugh aloud caper stories you've ever seen they don't have much to do with the tv series but you can see how they inspired the idea and so in doing those i was just thinking how much i like outlaws how much i like the outlier and the ones who can't be defined and the ones who um walk through they just it's as if they walk through the walls of convention because mm-hmm. they see it differently and they just they give you a new view of everything by just yeah. transgressing and so yeah. i want i like that in the murder stories like one of the stories has a character it's really um the murderer is is systemic racism in in the united states and mm-hmm. so i just i wanted surprises like that it's and i think one of the things also that is a positive side effect of going with that sort of like little known gem strategy and combining it with that strict chronological approach you have is i know that i'm I don't know if this is something that's worth saying I'm guilty of exactly, but I think many of us have had the experience of picking up an anthology and we recognize certain authors' names or certain titles and not others. And that might influence our decision of where we dive in and where we jump out. And that sure. that may make us want to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this story first because I know I really like this person. And maybe I'll just read the editor's sort of teaser or summary for this one to decide if I want to read it. But if we have instead a book where the likelihood of, of the general readership already knowing these authors is fairly low, then you really kind of put yourself in a position as an editor where we should trust you. Like you made the seating chart here. You decided who's sitting in what order at the dining table for this particular gala. There's a logic to it. Just trust me on this. Let's just go from front to back. I like that. I hadn't even thought that I was really doing that, but I think, I think, I am. And like you, I even at a cocktail party, you don't go around and introduce yourself to every guest in the order in which you pass them. So Well, you've like this, never been in a cocktail party with me, sir. I'm just saying. <laughs> or my son. We have rules around this place. <laughs> uh, my son is trying to learn how to um, to meet people. And he's mm-hmm. trying to understand the concept of a stranger. And, you mm-hmm. know, he's always asking questions. He's hyperverbal. I can't imagine where he got that. Um, and he's always trying to figure out how the world works because, you know, the filters of incoming and outgoing that autism put in the brain leave him curious, passionate, enthusiastic, and yet often very clueless about the context of what he's even doing at that moment. And so um, watching him deal with his curiosity um reminds me of myself in that way. And I've always known I was somewhere on the spectrum and that just not as, as far along as he in a lot of ways, but the, the passion for, for meeting people and the curiosity about topics is, is part of what feeds into my wanting to do more anthologies. And I hadn't done one for a while. And Elder Roeder, the uh, publisher of Penguin Classics emailed me and we started talking and, and we came up with this idea. And, um, nice. but it was part about me. It's like discovering new authors is like meeting new people at a, at an event and, and with the risk that now and then one of them is going to 
you're not going to care. And, and of bounce course, off of them. Yeah. Yeah. And you go to the, ne- <laughs> you go to the next one and, um, and you say to the author, life is short. I'm not going to spend any more time with you and go to the next one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's you not know, a committed it's, relationship. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because, uh, Tracy mentioned before we started recording that I've been doing this a really long time. A really long time. But, it's okay. um, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I had, uh, I had SF signal and I did the podcast there and then functional mm-hmm. nerds actually came first and we, we did this and I was mm-hmm. also helping Mer Lafferty with her podcast and, and, and I was going to conventions a lot. I was going to Worldcon. I was going to, and so I, I met a lot of people. I met a lot mm-hmm. of authors. And when I would come home, I would, I, you know, I got involved with some of the local conventions. And you keep you keep bringing up like the cocktail party and this and that. I, whenever Mile High Con would happen, there would always be the Friday night mixer with the authors, and I I kind of sort of be- became a host of that. Uh, because nice. they, they would ask me to, because I knew people on site and they would also like the programming people would come because I would introduce them to everybody. Like they didn't know the authors that they even like, they didn't know all the authors that they brought in. Sure. But I mm-hmm. would, I would stand there at the front of the bar as people are coming in and be like, Oh, Hey, Tracy, you know, here, meet Michael, blah, 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 blah. Right. You guys would like nice. each other. And I just would do that. Yeah. And I love stuff like that. Yeah, and and, and you're a benevolent point, you, fixer. Yeah. You you would see you would see what you're talking about. It's like you, uh, authors who who had similar uh, tastes and and were writing similar things would get together, and you'd get these little clumps of people who were talking mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and having great conversations, and 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 then that would lead to collaborations or you know such and such over here is doing an anthology. Let's get these people involved, and and, and it just kind of happened organically, and it was really neat. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, I, th- through things like that, because I'd written about Darwin in various books, um, I was introduced to Darwin's great-great-grandson at oh, wow. a, a book festival. And and um, he's a wonderful guy. And he um, his, his name is Matthew Chapman. And he's a writer, and he's a journalist, and he, he and I became friends. And it was all because I was known as somebody who was very interested in Darwin. Mm, and yeah. We're just passing literally on the stairs at a book festival and got introduced and hit it off and then started talking. And then we've done some panels together and some presentations. And I've seen it, visited him in New York a couple of times. He's been to stay here and things like that. And it, nice. but it all came from, to me, the coolest way, the, the tribe of, curio- of the curious, the cu- curiosity yeah. and enthusiasm, as we were saying before we started, really, curiosity and, yeah. and enthusiasm are a tribe in themselves. And so mm-hmm. that even if somebody's talking about a topic I know nothing about, such as I know a man who was recently talking about deer hunting, I know nothing about deer hunting. I'm not opposed to it. I eat meat, you know, but he, he spoke about it so passionately and lucidly yeah. that I, I caught it. I caught the fever. I understood. Yeah. And that's, that's why, why this would appeal. Yeah. Yes, and that's why, in general, encountering strangers. I mean, I keep a, a journal, and I, I've begun to write about the journal a little bit. I have an essay coming out in a couple of weeks about this. Um, and one of the things it seems to me is that in meeting strangers, 
and writing down, I literally have a section, I'm just writing down chats with strangers. It can get very quickly to intimate topics. I mean, really interesting things about religion and politics and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seems to me that women tell better stories than men in this, in this environment, that they're quicker to, I'm not generalizing about men and women in general. I mean, that women seem to me, they just, they tell a story with more details, more Mm. Or texture in in even chatting with strangers, I mean, and so I just find that interesting because you know there's nothing to write in the journal if you go, um, hey, how you doing? And the guy goes, eh, you know, and just grunts or something. <laughs> and and then right. but if he if he adds, I always feel like you meet a stranger. And I try to do this in writing this in the story introductions and things like that. I don't want to garnish this with a with a quick visit to Google. You know, I don't want to give sure. you something that you could get on Wikipedia. So, but I've been reading around in this forever. And like you guys, you know, I've got a brain a full, like an attic full of bookmarks <laughs> in my mm-hmm. head. And so these things come to mind and I make these connections. And I feel like in meeting people, the same thing. If you add one tiny extra sentence to meeting someone from, I like your hat. Could you? What's that pen about? That's yeah. on your shirt, mm-hmm. or anything? Yeah. Then, if they're like-minded, if they're of the tribe of the curious and enthusiastic, they will respond in kind, and they mm-hmm. give you ten percent more than the answer required. And then yeah. you do the same. And then I feel like you're each you're, you're like daring to be the first person to smile, you know that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> and it's you know which some groups they're not going to smile at you. I mean, yeah. you, know, you, you go to even a, a gathering of, like I went, especially the least smiley place I've ever visited, the Modern Language Association in Boston, visiting oh, a conference I, I, of the oof. MLA. And even in the elevators, no one was saying hello. They were looking at your badge to see which university you're at. And if you ranked, you would get a hello. Are you worthy of my yeah. speech? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And they would bestow upon you attention because you had registered in their, on their Mm -hmm. meter. And I, that just seemed, it's not opening a door, it's closing a door somehow. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I I don't talk about it much, uh, or at least I haven't talked about it in years, but when, when I started doing this stuff, this podcasting stuff. So, so Tracy mentioned uh, early on, like I was born in Chicago. Yes. I was born in Chicago. Uh, We lived in Berwyn, for a few years, my dad had a restaurant in, in, in on Cermak Road in Cicero, and then they split up, and Mom moved us to California. And I and I I, I literally grew up in California. That's where. I was. And then we're all Chicago-born Irish hip, uh, hillbillies. <laughs> and that, and yeah, yeah, like swallows then, to Capistrano. Yeah, really. I was I was, <laughs> yes. I was actually I was working for my aunt and uncle, <laughs> and he sold the business, and I had to find I had to get another job, and uh, my job took me to Tennessee. And so I lived in Knoxville for two years, and uh-huh. then another job took me to Chattanooga, which I loved. I still love Chattanooga. Chattanooga is just a great town. But I lived it in Chattanooga for two especially. years. <laughs> and then, no, no, you're fine. And then uh, I was working at Manufacturers Row, and the Manufacturers Row, you know, they all, they all, uh, uh, their tax exemptions expired, and they all moved to China, and uh, you know, leaving all those empty buildings there. And, and so I, I ended up in Colorado. But when I was in, believe it or not, when I was in Knoxville, my job was to travel. I had to travel a lot. I was in Illinois, Indiana, uh, North and South Dakota, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida. Like I was traveling all the time. So the point of all of this is 
uh, to your point, when I sat down and started podcasting and I found out where people were from, I usually had a frame of reference that we could talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're on the Johnny you know, Cash plan of relating to people. Yes. You've been everywhere, man. And so, yeah. and so I could, I could you know, if someone said they were from, they were from Memphis, I would go, oh, you know, I used to stay in this little, uh, on I-40, I used to stay in this little town. It was just outside of Memphis. It was a German town. And they had the best German chocolate milk. Like the chocolate milk there, for whatever reason, tasted fucking amazing. And I absolutely, yeah. I loved it. And I always went there. And they're like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, like there was always that <laughs> yeah. connection, right? I used to open the podcast by saying, there's three things we're not going to talk about. These are the three rules of podcasting. Have you ever heard them? And they go, no. I go, okay, the three rules of podcasting. We're not going to talk about politics. They're like, oh, yeah, that's that's good. We're not going to talk about Yeah, we're not going to talk about religion. Oh, yeah, I don't want to talk about religion. Okay. And we're not going to talk about barbecue. And they go, what? Wait a minute. Why can't we talk about barbecue? <laughs> and I go, well, here's the thing. You know, politics, talking about politics and religion isn't going to win you any fans. It's just going to make people angry. Right. That's what happens there. And and we're not going to talk about barbecue because Yankees get barbecue wrong. See, this seems so fair. <laughs> right. And but it was all a about like Asimov's rules of, ro- of robotics. Yeah. But you know, it was um, all about making connections. It was all about just, you know, kind of kind of getting people to relax and have a good conversation like we're having today. Mm-hmm. But it yeah. was it was that it was that you had to make that initial connection first. So. I have absolutely no idea if Tracy notices that I do this or not. But like when when someone mentions where they're from or they mention something, like I latch onto that because I know that I can make a connection there. And, and oh, I've and, done enough parent teacher something. conferences to know exactly yeah. what you're doing, sir. Yeah, and, and so I do that. <laughs> and, and that's what I do. And like for the most part, I, I let Tracy handle everything. <laughs> but I, I always try to make that connection of someone. Like as soon as you mentioned rural Tennessee, my brain's going, "Where in Tennessee? Where is he from?" Like I was in Knoxville. I used to drive Knoxville to Memphis all the time. Like I would have to go uh, through. Then Nashville. you drove you drove right through my town, which is called Crossville on the Cumberland Plateau. Yeah, where I was yeah. born. And so like area, I, yeah, tiresome town. <laughs> I, I was, I was all through there. Like I used to have to go to Memphis, uh, every 60 days. I had to go to Nashville every 60 days. I had to go down, uh, and, and I would go up to Clark's Clarksville. And yeah. it was, is it Indiana? I can't remember if that's in Indiana or if it's on the Tennessee side, but I would do that. And then I would call the office of Nashville in Tennessee. Yeah, and then I would call the office and I would sing the monkeys to the lady who answered the phone there and be, I'm on last train to Clarksville. I'll meet you at the station. Yeah, and it's all about connections. I can't believe you ever left that job. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like it has it was, many virtues. It, but the, it, so I always talk about this too. I left that job because it was lonely. I was an auditor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My job was to audit you. So there were rules. I was not allowed to be friendly. Well, I could be friendly, but I couldn't be friends. Like I couldn't hang out. And and so you – Because there was always the possibility that I would have to seize – I would have to seize (laughs) Um, your warehouse and put chains on it and lock it up and tell you that you're out of business. So that's difficult to do if you had three beers with those people the night before. Exactly. That could be a problem, yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, my image sure. of auditor I is, I do too. My image of auditor is from uh, "It's a Wonderful Life." It's the guy who comes in mm. to figure out what Uncle, what's his name, did with the money. Yeah, <laughs> the two yeah. thousand dollars that he stole. Yeah, eight thousand dollars. Is it two thousand or eight thousand? It was know. some, but at that point, to them, massive amount of money. 
Yeah, I yeah. think in yeah. today's yeah. dollars, oh, yeah. it's yeah. like it's several million. Mm-hmm. Is what they yeah. said something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I I, yep, there's no. probably been that 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 calculation made somewhere. There was, yeah. No, my job mm-hmm. was uh, I had to compare your inventory, your physical inventory, to what you reported to back to the company. And if it was there is different, yeah. I had to bill you for the difference. That mm-hmm. was fun. Yeah, no one, no one would think that's much fun. I the school where I teach is a state agency, and so we get audited every year as a state agency to make sure that we are, you know, conducting our fiduciary responsibilities with tax dollars, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the weirdest aspects of the audit is they will randomly select the names of people uh, from the from HR's payroll. And they will find you somewhere on campus to verify that you exist and are real and that you're not just like wow. a shell corporation as human being that has been invented to to draw money. And to make sure that you're real, they have to find you physically, lay eyes on you, and you have to present them a form of ID that is not your school ID. So there have been situations where I've been teaching a class and doing my thing and someone from HR walks into the back of the room and they're like, and they like, give me the little thumb point over to the person in the suit standing next to them. And I'm like, hang on a second, students. And I have to walk out of my room, go to my office, get my purse and be like, yep, is me. I am this person. (laughs) Which also tells you. And that's what I had to do. Human human That's beings what I had are to do. sneaky yeah. Go ahead. primates. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, just yeah, totally no, untrustworthy. So, <laughs> the, the, this industry was HVAC. So it was air conditioning and heating equipment. And yeah. this is the same business that my uncle had in California when I worked for him. I was in charge of our inventory for him. So that's, mm-hmm. that's why I got this job. Because I, I called that company up that was auditing us. And I said, hey, I'm leaving. Because he sell, he sold the business. I'm I'm done. I'm leaving, and they're like, "Oh shit, no! <laughs> Can we hire you?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Yeah." And they said, "Okay." The only thing is, you got to move to Tennessee. I was like, "Fine." And and so I knew what I knew what people did to hide the inventory. Oh, sure. because part of the deal was part of the deal was uh, you, you you basically you had a bonded warehouse. You could have all this inventory that you didn't have to pay for until it was sold. And that, that helped you, you know, build your business. And you, part of the agreement, though, was you could never refuse a shipment for any reason. So the manufacturer ships you a truckload of equipment and half of it is damaged. You cannot refuse it. You have to take it into your inventory. And then you have to warranty it. You have to do the warranty stuff. Mm-hmm. And you have to get it fixed. And then you can sell it. But you, you have to take it onto your books. And so now we understand why you quit. Yes. And, and so, so you, I knew all this stuff. So these things would come in cardboard boxes and my uncle would tell me stories of when he was in Carothersville, Missouri, which is the proper way to pronounce that, uh, that he, he had a, 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 an appliance business and he had a similar thing. And what he would do, you know, he, he would have the refrigerator box. You'd sell the refrigerator. You'd keep the box. And then when they come count, there's the empty box, but they didn't check the empty box. They just mm-hmm. counted all the boxes and said, okay, you still have 12 refrigerators. You're good. Uh, so I would go through and I would do that when I was auditing. And these warehouse guys fucking hated me. 
because <laughs> I knew all their tricks. I knew all the yeah. stuff. And uh, I feel like, like there's okay. there's the bone structure of a of a murder mystery <laughs> with a reluctant murder investigator who's just an auditor trying to do his thing at some like industrial company, and he discovers that one of the empty refrigerator boxes has a body in it. Uh, like like I, I, I feel like this is the beginning like, of a framework of a story. It's like so. the, Alfred Hitchcock always had the idea of the movie that he never got around to making, which was he visited uh, an automobile um, assembly line and yeah. they were putting together the last parts of the car and it was traveling down the assembly line and you saw it being put together. And at the end it comes off the, um, the belt and rolls up here and they open the door and a body falls out. Mm, and, at what point? You've seen the whole thing assembled <laughs> like, yeah. and you think, so yeah. that's one of those locked room murder kind of things. He said he never could figure out how to do it, but he was haunted by that image. And so I think yeah. you can do the same thing with, with, with your guy. And then there you go. Becomes, there you go. And then you got homework now, Patrick. Good job. That's your, that's the toll for the story. <laughs> and in the first seven stories, he goes from job to job and at each one there's a murder to solve. And in the eighth story, you find out he's actually the killer. <laughs> yeah. That's why. Because it's like. There you go. Yeah. Uh, what's just... Miss Marple in St. Mary yeah. Mead? I mean, mm -hmm. the crime rate yeah. around these people or like. Eric oh, Caparo, it's insane. Yeah. He never goes yeah. anywhere without somebody dying. And, you know, I, if yeah. I saw him at a restaurant, I would go, we got to go, honey. No, I'm we're like, can turn around. And, I don't care. This place is a Michelin yeah. star. We're gone. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only person, the only person who would invite Hercule Poirot to dinner is George R. R. Martin. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. I see what you did the there. Red wedding. The red yes. wedding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I got, you. I got you. It's okay. We're 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 on we're on I the wavelength. Again. Can you No, put it's cool. It's fine. This in the part where I was silent. It, <laughs> no, it's cool. There's a there's a higher order level of nerd joke operating there. Oh, the listeners will love it, won't you, listeners? Uh, <laughs> so. I'm I'm very impressed, including with the listeners who got it. Right. So I, I do want to ask a quick question before we kind of like shift towards picks of the week, because sure. it, it actually is part of why I thought it would be really fun to have you on. And it has, in fact, been incredibly fun to have you on. So thank you, Michael. Um, thank you. But but I was thinking about it and maybe Penguin itself was thinking about this as well, that it feels at least from the, a consumer of media side of things like we are in a kind of cultural revival of the murder mystery. Um, so. at least in terms of, of where, how many different narrative spaces are now grabbing the murder mystery as something that obviously we've got Ryan Johnson's Benoit Blanc mysteries have been just tremendously critically received. Uh, Branagh is sort of reinvigorating yeah. Christie. Um, you know, we've got only murders in the building. Yay. Uh, we have so many variations on the police procedural, um, that have kind of evolved away from just our sort of law and order kind of, um, you know, bread and butter kind of thing into much more kind of sophisticated deals. And I'm, I'm interested in, in that landscape, what are some of the things going on right now with murder mysteries that excite you that like, these are the ah. things that you, that you like to read and watch. I think it's um, in part that just the new voices thing that we talked about mm -hmm. a little bit with the women coming in to write new private eye books in the 70s and recreate the notion of a private eye um, and police officer, too, in separate ones. Um, I think the first thing I think of is one I absolutely loved is Attica Locke's series about um, I've just forgotten his last name. He's a Texas is um, a black Texas ranger. And so oh, okay. he's in very traditional white 
power structure as a black man. And so then there's even the the mixed emotions among his friends and family of what is he doing in that environment. And mm-hmm. so it's very complex. It's very emotionally convincing. And because of the way she portrays small town poor people, I keep seeing my mother and for the benefit of listeners who have no audio on, I'm not black, but I keep seeing my mother in her small town poor characters. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, so that's some, one of the things I'm excited about is just the, the new way that so many people are getting to do new voices. And um, there's the show Unforgotten. Oh, okay. It? Um, it's on, it's a BBC crime show. And mm-hmm. um, the the first that was first a white woman was the detective and the assistant was an Indian man, mm-hmm. and then they restructured the show, but they kept him and they kept a greater and greater focus on him, and I think those kinds of things are giving whole new worlds to everything, and in nonfiction yeah. too, you're just getting some of the very best, just glorious new writing, glorious new novels, and so the same thing in mysteries. Um, and, and then there's uh, a wonderful uh, English writer, he's originally Scottish, who lives in France named Martin Walker. You, you may have read, he writes the series that's called the, the Bruno series. He writes about okay. a small town in the Dordogne, a small town um, French policeman. And he, it, I think he's one of the greatest prose writers I ever read. I just think he's fabulous. Wow. But he... He he writes about f- the food in the region. He writes about ordinary everyday life. He writes about walking the dog, and how long and how all the conversations that are often about crime and you, there's stuff in there that are clues that you don't catch at first, but it's a conversation around all of them getting together to prepare dinner in a glorious French way. And so what he's done is take some of the tropes of uh, cozies and gotten rid of them because the books sometimes wind up almost James Bondian. Oh, wow. So that's one of the things I'm excited about again, because he's just going, it's not a traditional male hero. It's not a traditional male approach. He's very family and friend oriented. He's uh, he's a passionate cook. And he's one of those um, writers who just anchors to me, like Stephen King does this. He anchors you in the, the body, the characters you're reading, you're inside their bodily experience. They sweat, they get uncomfortable, their shoes hurt. And so mm-hmm. Martin Walker does that. And so, uh, again, it's a kind of uh, literary fiction attention and texture yeah. and atmosphere yeah. brought to what sometimes a police story, that local police story that evolves into espionage kind of stuff. And so just the, the thing that frightens Ron DeSantis uh, for example, to pick someone at random who worries so much about categories is what I find and what I think passionate, enthusiastic people in the arts always find is that the the walls coming down. Uh, so mm-hmm. many of uh, the barriers don't count the same way they used to. Like back mm-hmm. to the 70s private eye writers like Sarah Paretsky in creating yeah. V.I. Warshawski. Her The first couple of these are basically her character is doing what all the the men did like part of the transition was it's women in what we're seeing as men's roles. And then very soon it's more than that. And so it's again, just the, the, the artificial barriers getting messed up 
in the same way with the excitement of nonfiction nowadays and stuff like that. Just, I think we're, I think that's part of what, um, the Tea Party is not still around, I guess. But anyway, those people, I think part of what <laughs> right, they're yeah. about, you know, the yeah. white supremacists and and, and nationalists yeah. and religious extremists. I think they're like the ketamine party now is sort of where we are. Yes, yes. Point. I think, yeah. and, they're, <laughs> and they're no longer sitting around debating Lipton or Louisiana. And mm-hmm. so they, um, I think their fear of everything and their desperate clinging to categories mm-hmm. is, is why they're banning things and they're trying to ban the history of other Americans and so many things like this is because the categories are not so rigid anymore that, and that is what makes to to me some contemporary mysteries really exciting. And, and that's part of what I want to try to find in historical mysteries like this. Mm -hmm. And you prowl, I'm prowling the attic, but, and I love this dusty kind of hobby, but I'm also wanting to, look at things that were already stepping outside the boundaries 150 or 200 years ago. And that's transgression. You know, it's, it's exciting. That's awesome. So there's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot to be enthusiastic about right there, but if we can, if we can spare a little bit of enthusiasm for wrapping up, let's do a couple picks. Do we have picks of the week for us? We we can can absolutely do picks. Picks of the week. All right. So, Patrick, what what would your pick be for this week? Affirmative master. <laughs> Doctor Who. <Okay. laughs> I had to put Kane. I'm not on. surprised. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Doctor Who is back. It's the 60th anniversary. They're doing some specials. They've brought back David Tennant, who's one of my favorite doctors. And I and I, I realized today one of the reasons why I think that he is just so good in the role and it, it just exudes fun and enthusiasm is because he's a fan. He grew up mm-hmm. on Doctor Who. Yeah. He loves Doctor Who. And to be able to play the character of the doctor just, you know, it just brings all this out of him. And so uh, as of this recording, the Star Beast dropped which is, you know, brings back David Tennant and Catherine Tate as Donna Noble, uh, one of the, the most fun pairings. And w- it, it just, and it also brings back RTD, right? Russell, and as the showrunner and the writer. And it brought back the fun. It's just mm-hmm. so fun. And I feel like that's what it's been lacking for a while. I, I, I've said this before, I think Stephen Moffat, really sucked the fun out of the show because he he was so intent on showing everyone the proper way to play with the toys oh that that he he (laughs) he just stripped so much of the fun away and and i love jody whitaker and but i felt like she did not have great stories she did not have great writing and and yeah. suffered from that. She she was great. The other characters were great. I couldn't understand a fucking word Dan ever said, but uh, that's just that Liverpool accent. It just it just gets me. But other than that, you know, it, it, it's just fun. They brought yeah. the fun back. Uh, the Star Beast is on Disney Plus in America. Uh, it's on uh, the BBC, obviously in the UK. And then there's another one that's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, tonight, actually, as we're recording this, that I'm I'm very excited for, but I won't get to watch it for a while because we're doing a lot of podcasting today. But it's are, uh, the Star Beast is based on a on a, a comic that Dave Gibbons drew back in the day, 
and uh, written by Pat Mills. I actually wrote this down. Pat Mills and John Wagner. Uh, and they adapted it. It was a fourth Doctor story. Now it's a 14th Doctor story. And just a lot of fun. And you can also tell the RTD, they asked him, you know, what, is, what does Disney bring to the table? He's like, money. They bring yeah. lots and lots of money. Lots and of money. watch the Star Beast. You see that money. You're like, oh, okay. But they didn't, they didn't do what a lot of people were afraid of. They, people were afraid that the money would, would distract. Like they would go too far and then it wouldn't be With- Doctor Who anymore. Got it. But actually, it seems to have opened them up to do a lot more practical effects. That's and, interesting. And, 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 and like they had cars exploding and flipping on a street and they had lots of chases and, and stuff happening. And I just – they had a lot of cast. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. They had so many unit soldiers it wasn't even funny. So while the, the, the effects got better, mm-hmm. uh, it didn't distract from, from it being Doctor Who. So Good. very, very excited. Very, very exciting. Right. Nice. Awesome. Michael, how about you? Um, the very first thing that comes to mind as just a pick of something that just brings outrageous joy and transgressive joy, to use that word again, reservation dogs. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. I just think it's one of the most brilliantly written comedies, if it's a com- comedy, I've ever seen. And like you get this really tightly wound older native cop mm-hmm. and he is himself mm-hmm. in this like an Attica Locks hero in her detective series he's seen as 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 bailing on the people because he became a cop and he sees himself as trying to do good to stand in the in the middle of the power structure and and do good things and so how do you get he's so tightly wound up how do you get inside him you have him somebody gives him basically LSD and he has a trip and the deer woman shows up and just everything. And then the, the ghost, uh, the, the, the spirit, the warrior, the warrior yeah. who mm-hmm. died at, um, little big corner, wherever, but he wasn't, he didn't actually die in the fighting. His horse fell down and he broke a leg, you know, all these kinds of things, all of the way the characters talk to each other, all the way that it's a native cast, a native, um, crew native writing and they're going in and and playing things that no one no outsider could write like the same way i think about this with my son as i mentioned earlier who has he's 10 and has autism and it's made me listen to people in a new way because he doesn't Mm -hmm. he, he doesn't have that old myth people had about autism that he didn't want doesn't want to communicate he does but he has his own absolutely his own way of doing it. And, and so I listen to him and I write things down and I feel like I couldn't possibly have made this up. I could not have made this up. And I feel like no one not inside small town native and reservation kind of culture could so gloriously parody everything and break your heart at the same time. Every single episode breaks your heart. And so that's the one that I think is, is one of the things that I see nowadays that I just think is just genius. And they're already saying that they're going to, it's going to be the last season is coming up. Right. Yeah. And yeah, uh, third season's and that, last. that's something I feel like um, they do more that nowadays it's part of creativity and streaming and everything is given so many kinds of options that creators doing something with a show 
I feel like this began with Gary Larson way back with the far side. He just, when he was finished, he quit. He just said, mm -hmm. yeah. I, and Bill Waterson, who was doing Calvin and Hobbes. Same. Said, yeah. Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. He said, I'm kind of done. And then Burke Breathed with um, Bloom County. And he's, he's back. Mm -hmm. He's yes, back. He's, and, and, but he, but they just had this sense of like old TV series used to go forever. They'd be like 17 yeah. years. How long can we make this go? Yeah. How yeah. much, how much more can we squeeze out of this golden goose? Uh, and I mean, I mean, 60 years of Dr. Who, I mean, come on. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Who, yeah. Dr. Who has always, I've not seen much Dr. Who. So I'm completely, I don't have the authority to say anything about this, but my thought has always been that it's, it's kept itself new and in a way it's kept itself niche market. It's kept itself it, it, local. It's, yeah. it's for like cultural locobores. It's mm -hmm. not mass. It's not, it doesn't have a mass produced mentality. No. So and, it was, and, ne and, it was and never it, going it stays, to be. It's, yeah. And it stays, to your point, it, it, it reinvents itself by regeneration. Yeah. Which is yeah. a genius idea. <laughs> yeah. Because mm -hmm. I mean, they, the they basically thing. said, they, they're like, they're like, we have a hit on our hands. Wonderful. William Hartnell is sick. Yeah. What do you mean he's sick? Well, he's um, really, really old. He's not feeling well. He doesn't think he can do this anymore. Shit. Yes. <laughs> What's our escape? What can we do? Yeah. What can we yeah. do? Yeah. What, if, what if he regenerates into a younger guy? <gasps> yeah, let's do that. Yeah, somebody needs yeah. an award just for that idea, for things yeah. like that. And the same way, like there are the concept of the other side, the underworld, or whatever it's called on Stranger Things. Yeah, um, yeah the upside down. Mm -hmm. The upside down. Just the way in which that is conceptualized through the whole series, it somehow takes lots of kind of common tropes, mixes them all together, and makes them scary again. Because I worry yeah. all the time about those kids. I watch an episode of that show, and every minute I'm going, oh, my God, these guys are going to get killed. And so they're doing something really right. And um, and then speaking of genius, you find somebody like Billy Bobby, Millie Bobby Brown. Um, mm -hmm. as somebody who just, you go, okay, there's the next superstar actress of our generation, of, mm -hmm. not my generation of our era. <laughs> and just so many things like that. It's just wonderful. You encounter, you, you see somebody and you think this is like the people doing reservation dogs. You know, you think, oh, mm -hmm. I hope you guys go on forever and keep shaking things up. And, um, so, so what about you, Tracy? What's yeah. the, your pick? So uh, my pick, uh, folks who are, are longtime listeners of the podcast or even relatively short-time listeners know that I tend to pick games pretty frequently. And so this is a game that has been a pick of the week for me in the past, but I'm picking it again because of an expansion we got to it recently. So the, the base game is called Mysterium. And for those of you who haven't heard the, that uh, pick of the week spiel before, Mysterium is a cooperative board game that's based on the idea that all of the different players are mystics. They are mediums, um, psychics, who have gone to the mansion where someone died under mysterious circumstances 30 years before. And now on the 30th anniversary of their passing, there are disturbances indicating that their spirit has returned and that this spirit um, from having been sort of lost in the ether of an, uh, of an unresolved death is um, fragmented. You know, it's, it's unable to communicate clearly about the circumstances of its death. 
And so the there's a player of the game who um, is representing the spirit and then everyone else are the are the psychics and the person who represents the spirit gets a deck of cards that have this absolutely gorgeous but extremely weird art on them all of the images are sort of pastiches of things that don't make sense together they have almost a sort of dali-esque kind of quality to them and the idea behind it is this player representing the spirit has already behind a screen predetermined who the murderer was. Think of it as Clue, but if Clue was way more atmospheric, um, they know who the murderer was, where the, where the murder happened, and with what object. And they have laid out an array of potential suspects and locations of death and murder objects from which we have to sort through. And we as psychics receive visions in the form of these art cards. And so the art cards are meant to trigger us looking at then say like, oh, there's a there's like a black curtains in this particular image here. And that person is wearing a black cape. I wonder if they're trying to tell me that that is the person who I should identify as a possible murderer. Oh, I, murderer. I, I played this with you guys, didn't I? Um, I think you brought, that to Cal- you brought that to Colorado. I played we, that. With we you. brought it to Colorado. I don't yeah, remember yeah. if we played it with you or not, we but, yeah. but anyway, the expand, it's a wonderful game and, That's and you're great. working together to kind of use this art to communicate things that are difficult to communicate. The person who is, uh, playing the ghost can't speak. They can only knock on the table to say yes or no in response to whether or not you have correctly identified things from their clues. And you have to, before the end of the 10th hour of the night, correctly identify the murder or murder location and murder weapon. And if you do not, the spirit has lost its opportunity to gain its eternal rest. And so those are the stakes of the game. Um, it's a fun game. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, it has uh, several different expansions. We recently got the Hidden Signs expansion, which adds uh, new murder weapons, new murder locations, new murderers, um, or at least suspects, and as well as a few other sort of potential wrinkles. And so the, the joy of this game is that it already has a ton of replayability in it in any case. And this, of course, just adds some additional layers to it. Um, you can play it with, if you're really determined, as few as two people with just one investigator and one one ghost, but it works really well with more than that. We've had great success with it with people of all sorts of different ages. Uh, Patrick has, has partaken with my family before. Um, it's a good time. So if you're feeling kind of a little bit spooktacular uh, here in this coldest part of the year and you want to accompany something with your copy of the Penguin Book of Murder Mysteries, maybe play Mysterium <laughs> with the Hidden Signs expansion. There you go. Well, I like this. It's as if they got Lovecraft to write for a TV show, a detective a TV bit. show. A little bit oh, without oh. without the sort of piercing and painful racism. But yes. <laughs> Very nice. Point, right. yes. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been just a ball talking to you, Michael. Uh, oh, thank, thank you so you. much for joining Great. us. Now, if people want to keep track of you and your work and and support it and follow it and, and read it, where should they go to look for you and your stuff? Um, Twitter, Michael Sims Books, or um, especially Threads, which I'm enjoying very much. I'm glad that there's yet another player in that neighborhood. And I think Instagram is also Michael Sims Book. Um, And so any of those, and um, I'm often connecting with Penguin Classics and other Penguin things on there. And also just talking to people about the joy of being moderately functional and excessively nerdy. (laughs) Well, we can relate to that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I appreciate being invited. It was fun. 
and scene. You've been listening to the Functional Nerds podcast, but you already knew that. So why not tell all your friends about us? Think of it as giving us a holiday gift. Speaking of holiday gifts, why not visit our Patreon over at patreon.com slash functional nerds and give us a couple of bucks. We'd appreciate it. Speaking of appreciation, we appreciate the folks over at Beyond the Trope, a podcast by nerds for nerds. Giles and Michelle release episodes like clockwork every Tuesday. No, wait, that doesn't make sense. Podcasts aren't like clockworks. Podcasts are fun sound vibrations for your ears. That got weird. Sorry. Just go listen to Beyond the Trope and we'll forget this conversation ever happened. Now, the Meep and Moopsie walk into a bar. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel. Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise. <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.